0: Hello, and welcome to the Selling St. Pete podcast, your go-to resource for all things real estate and all things St. Pete. I'm your host, Nicole Sanchez. Hello, and welcome to the Selling St. Pete podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sanchez. Today, I am joined by Paul Valenti and Jeffrey Lork with the Pinellas County Office for Human Rights. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about fair housing, and given all of the events of the past few months between COVID-19 and the civil unrest, I thought this was a really necessary conversation to have. And a few months ago, I attended a training that you guys did at my realtor board on implicit bias and fair housing. And quite honestly, in my five years of real estate, I thought that was one of the best and most important trainings that I've attended. So I well, want to thank you. thank you very much. Um, so how, how long have you guys been working with uh, the Office for Human Rights?
2: Jeffrey, the floor is yours.
1: Well, (laughs) I I would consider to be a short timer in terms of the rest of the staff. I've only been with the office almost four years. I'm originally from the state of Indiana, where I was the executive director of the Terre Haute Human Relations Commission, before joining this great office here in Pinellas County, under the direction of our esteemed director.
0: Very much.
2: Paul? So I've had the privilege of serving as the director of human rights in Pinellas County now for a little over eight years. And I've been doing civil rights work generally for almost 20. Wow,
0: and so what led you to a career in civil rights?
2: So I'll take this first, if you don't mind, Jeffrey, and then let you jump in. For me, it was really, um, I was involved in corporate immigration work and I just knew that I didn't go through college and law school to push paper. Not that corporate immigration isn't important for those to whom it's important, but I just thought there was something more important that I should be doing with my life and it's something that I believe in. So that's why I got drawn to this. And I was lucky enough to get a call from my um, state commission at the time, the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights to come and work for them. And so it was a no brainer for me.
1: For me, uh, human rights kind of found me. I was a community activist. I was a hairdresser by profession. Um, and always striving to uh, represent the unrepresentative communities, um, always encouraging those who were less, were considered less than and misfortunate. And it just so happened that the mayor of our city at that time, the Terholt, uh, Indiana, came into my barbershop and asked me to join the Office of Human Rights. Um, And I said, what do they do? (laughs) And they said, we defend people's civil rights. I said, sign me up. (laughs) And so I've been doing that work Uh, like my esteemed director, for about 20 years now.
0: That's awesome. So um, who is protected under the Fair Housing Act? The Fair Housing Act was signed into law in 1968? Yep. As a part of the larger civil rights um, legislation that was put into effect. Um, In this instance, who is protected
2: under the Fair Housing Act?
1: Director, you, you lead that training, so I'll let you you lead.
2: <laughs> so, so under federal law, historically, it would be race, color, religion, national origin. In um, 1988, they added familial status and disability. There's always been uh, an argument whether or not one's orientation or gender identity fell under the federal protections. And historically, the federal view was, no, it didn't. So, so those were the protected groups, race, color, religion, national origin, um, sex, but not one's orientation, identity, disability, and familial status. But with the recent Supreme Court decision relating to employment rights and gender expression and gender identity, I think the analysis that the court used in that decision holds up equally well in the Title VIII. Uh, housing field Title Seven is the employment realm. Title Eight is the housing realm. And I just, if I had to put money on it, although we don't bet on legal rulings, I would put money on the fact that the analysis would be much the same, and therefore protections would extend in housing like they do now in employment.
0: So prior to the the recent su- Supreme Court ruling, it didn't apply in housing, and, and it doesn't now technically, but it does according to a lot of state and local legislation, correct?
1: No, you, mainly you found a language specific for the LGB, LGBT community and local human rights agencies.
0: Correct, uh, right, at the uh, state and local you, level.
1: Um, At the local, not even the state, you would have specific language. Yeah, I mean, yeah, unless the, uh, and did the Florida, Civil, Florida Commission on Human Rights have it in their ordinance? We had a meeting with them the other week, and, I, and they said they didn't have it. And oh, wow. so, um, But I know in 2012, President Obama signed an executive order that it would allow um, fair housing organizations to take uh, complaints under the LGBT. Uh, I don't know that it's been executive ordered out. But they've always tried to get uh, the LGBT community under sex. They tried to massage it that way in order to get them on the federal level. But specific okay. language generally came on local uh, human rights organizations.
0: So in the greater Tampa Bay area, are those protections, do they apply at the local level?
2: Yeah, no, they absolutely do. We're fortunate here in Pinellas County, our board of county commissioners as the policymakers for Pinellas County back in 2012, actually 2007 is when they adopted sexual orientation protections. So they were ahead of the state and federal government uh, by several years. And then in 2013, they also adopted, affirmatively, language that protects gender identity and gender expression. The city of Tampa has similar language. My understanding is Hillsborough County does too. So as Jeffrey was saying, at the local level, city councils or boards of county commissioners have enacted these protections, but they're not statewide. And so uh, I personally believe we're lucky to be in a county where our policymakers Affirmatively decided to protect those groups as well. Mm
0: -hmm. And what do these fair housing laws prohibit?
2: (laughs) Denial of, of rental or sales for an illegitimate discriminatory reason. In other words, I refuse to rent to blacks. I won't sell to a Jew in this neighborhood. It denies that. It denies false representation of availability. That's the classic testing scenario where You call and inquire, yeah, we've got homes for rent, apartments for rent. Then somebody shows up and they're Black or Hispanic or, and all of a sudden the availability disappears. It prevents uh, redlining or suggesting that the value of a home is less simply because the makeup of the community in which the housing is located, the demographic makeup of the community. It prevents, uh, in the disability realm, it prevents not only affirmative discrimination against persons with disabilities, you know, I won't rent to somebody in a wheelchair because they'll rip up the carpeting in the apartment. Illegal. But it also affords persons with disabilities the right to ask for reasonable accommodations and reasonable modifications to fully enjoy the housing opportunity. So the the protections are actually quite broad.
1: I wanna include familiar status too for uh, persons uh, who have custody of children under the age of 18 are covered. Absolutely.
2: And
0: does that extend to housing for older persons say for instance if you had a grandmother or grandparents that were taking on custody of young children and they live in a 55 plus or 62 plus community would that extend to them
2: yeah no so so historically it wouldn't um when c- congress passed these laws a specific carve out was to allow such senior communities to exist without the presence of minor children. And, and, and it's an actual specific exemption or exception to the rule uh, under the Fair Housing Act. But where the issues get interesting is when it becomes issues of caregiver assistance. Because then, you know, oftentimes caregivers are, uh, are not gonna be 55 and older. And if they're not, does that mean I can't have a living caregiver to allow me to live here and enjoy the community. That's where the questions become interesting. But if it's a straight up look now I have custody of my grandchild they're under the age of 55 they actually can't exclude those communities as long as they're legitimately such a community.
1: Okay. Deal with, deal with Paul briefly the idea uh, that there's the minimum uh, occupancy what the 80, 80% rule uh, yeah. over the age of 55. Yeah Jeffrey raises a great point you know we get a lot of
2: Occasionally, we'll get a defense to a claim of discrimination that this is a 55 and older community. And under the exemption that I just discussed, we can exclude a minor from the community. But the trick is you actually have to be such a community. And there are generally two major tests as to whether you're one of those communities. One is that 80% at least 80% of each residents must have one person age 55 and older. And then the other is you gotta hold yourself out as such a community. So that's why when you drive by, you'll see the signs that say 55 plus, that's part of affirmatively holding themselves out as such a community. But what we find sometimes is with the passage of time, people either moving away or unfortunately passing away, the demographics of the community can change. And so a community might say, well, we're 55 and older, then we'll ask, well, when's your last census? What's your composition of your community? Well, we haven't done it. Okay, so like to make the math easy, let's say there are hundred units, we knock on hundred doors and 76 have one person aged 55 or older, but the others don't. Well, you're not at 80% anymore. You're no longer a 55 and older community. And now you can't exert that exemption and you can't deny entrance to the minor.
0: And those communities have to update their status or their um, paperwork, I think, every couple of years.
2: We would recommend that they do it at least every couple of years. Really, the idea would be yearly, though. Do a census, because once you go by, uh, behind or beyond that 80-20 mix, you've lost the statutory exemption.
0: Right. So now that we're talking about exemptions, what are some of the other exemptions to the fair housing laws?
1: So the Miss Murphy, Murphy exemption.
2: Yep, Miss Murphy, little Miss Murphy. So when Congress had, when Congress passed the law, one of the things they says, we're not they envisioned little Miss Murphy. All she has in the world is the rental income in which she lives. The owner occupied four units or less. And so when Congress passed the Fair Housing Act, they reasoned Are we gonna force Ms. Murphy to take in people that she doesn't want to take in? And they said, no, we're not. So owner occupied, four units or less. Single family um, residences, if it's not turned over more than three times in a year, or if you have more than three that you don't turn over in a year. Sometimes we get smaller uh, landlords, they have three properties. They rent out each one time a year if in midstream, they rent one of them out one other time, that's now four transactions in one year, you're covered under the act.
0: Okay.
1: And the advertising um, prohibitions that come along with that too. If you use a professional broker uh, to find a renter or, or somebody to lease your property, then you lose that exemption as well.
0: Right. right, I would think so because as a realtor, you know, if you're a member of a realtor board, We have a code of ethics that we have Mm -hmm. to adhere to and that certainly falls under our code of ethics is to uphold the laws
2: no absolutely and as jeffrey just mentioned and i'm glad he caught me on it if you or a colleague is involved in any deal then the act applies
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's funny i early in my career i um had gone to a, a home that was for sale by owner and I was looking on behalf of a buyer who happened to be out of town, so I was just previewing it. And I was utterly shocked, left speechless, when the homeowner said the people that they were not willing to rent to. And um, it would have been a clear violation of fair housing, but again, you know, I don't know the number of units that that person owned, but this home was right across the street from where they lived. And it was prior to my training with you. So now I know what I could have done to remedy that. That's yeah. So um, who enforces fair housing laws?
1: We're our office for one. Uh, we have an office of five investigators. Uh, we have a memorandum of understanding with the department of HUD uh, the Fair Housing uh, Organization. And so we do uh, fair housing um, investigations on the local level. Uh, HUD certainly does them on the federal level. And, and of course the Florida Commission of Human Rights does fair housing investigations as well. Uh, and they cover the entire state. Um, so we we covered particularly the Pinellas County area. Are, sorry, if, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, you can go ahead. Are,
0: are there testers, if you will, that will, you know, try to rent to see if there is discrimination? Does that only happen if someone has potentially reported a violation?
2: So our office doesn't engage in testing. um, But that doesn't mean that there can't be private organizations dedicated to fair housing who can't undertake testing in Pinellas County. And they may in particular, if there are repeated concerns, typically you'll get testing when a fair housing organization hears repeated concerns about the same community. Then that usually is a trigger to suggest testing is warranted. They get completed uh, consistent inquiries that, you know, community acts over here, they just don't seem to have availability when some protected group looks to rent or buy that's often a, a, an indicator that testing is required. We won't conduct the testing in our office; we just don't have the resources. But we certainly will accept testing evidence as we consider a case and whether or not we believe a discriminatory act occurred.
1: And HUD and HUD HUD does uh, make funding available for testing. And they they if like Paul said, if it's a systemic issue, HUD themselves will go in and provide some of that testing too in local jurisdictions.
0: In light of the recent events, have you seen an uptick in reporting of fair housing violations?
2: Well, I'm going to defer to Jeffrey in part because he's our day-to-day operations manager and knows those numbers. Jeffrey, have we seen an uptick?
1: No, actually we not, but I'm anticipating um, as the evictions start to roll out that we'll start seeing some of those those numbers going up. And it's a really a tricky issue for us because Paul uh, talked about the protected categories. And a lot of times people will try to make uh, an eviction of fair housing complaint. But if, you, if you're if you not being discriminated and you're not a, one of those protected categories, we don't have jurisdiction. Uh, we can't stop a landlord from evicting you unless, unless it's based on one of those protected categories. If, if you know that there are Caucasian families inside of the unit who are behind on their rent and unable to pay, or uh, you're the one Hispanic family in the building and you're the one being moved on uh, to be evicted, then that is a fair housing a, a violation and we will take that complaint. Mm-hmm.
0: But it would be hard, I would imagine, to prove that unless you have indisputable evidence.
1: Yes. It very rarely in any investigation of discrimination do you get direct evidence. Uh, but there are ways to, to gather uh, extenuating evidence to help us draw or come to uh, what we believe is a reasonable conclusion.
0: Sure. So where can a person learn about specific fair housing requirements for their city or their state if they're not local to Pinellas County?
2: So, so there are several sources that we could suggest to them. Um, you, you, the federal law is available at, at HUD, right, on HUD's website. State law would be available at the uh, Florida Senate Dot gov has Florida Civil Rights Act and for local governments throughout Florida, there's a company called Municode. They, they, they're an organization that basically helps codify local ordinances based on jurisdiction. And so you can go to the Municode library, click on the state of Florida on the map. And then once you're in the state of Florida, you can click on to uh, by alphabet. jurisdictions, either county or municipal to find local ordinances. And that's where I always go when I need to find what some other county has in place. I'll go to Municode, click on Florida, and then let's say Orange County, click on O for Orange County, and boom, now I'm looking at their laws.
0: Okay, and that's something that we can put in the show notes or the comments so that people can access those links directly from there. Um, If a person has to file a fair housing complaint, how would they go about that process?
1: we have multiple ways. You can certainly um, go to our website, the Office of Human Rights website, uh, and then you can download an intake packet and fill out your complaint. Um, and then you can actually um, come into our office, not now during the pandemic, but uh, we have an intake officer. Uh, we have intake packets that's in our office, even right now where well, the building's closed. But when the building opens, we have applications outside of our office. If someone wants to come by and file and pick up a packet. Somebody maybe that doesn't have internet access or hear word of mouth about an office, they can certainly stop by our office and pick up a packet as well. And we will take them that way. Uh, are there some other ways, Paul, that I'm, I'm missing? You could certainly call our
2: phone number too, uh, as Jeffrey suggested. We're, we're for the safety of our staff, we're trying to, and the public, we're trying to work remotely and and. Uh, engage in good social distancing practices. But um, our, our phone number is still working, it's still operable. And what we do is it, it, it takes any calls that come in and reduces them to a audio recording basically that then gets emailed out so that we can hear it. And so they're free to call us on our main line, which is 77, ah, there you go, 727-464-4880, 727. 727- Four six four four eight eight zero. We do prefer, though, um, online, as Jeffrey was suggesting, internet-based, only because it, it'll make the process quicker. It's in your words. Your initial story or inquiry is in your words, so, and, and it just makes things move a little faster. Okay. And,
1: and we are open for business. All right. Absolutely. Doing the pandemic, we're open.
0: What happens if someone is found to be in violation of fair housing?
2: a great question. So so what we would try to do is once we've conducted our investigation and believe that a violation of the act occurred, we send a notice to the party saying we're, we've are we reviewed the matter and we're leaning towards a cause determination and we're offering one last opportunity for the parties to sit down and conciliate or mediate the matter. If we get a resolution that way, that's great. We're strong proponents of mediation. We believe that that's a way the parties can craft their own future without some third party imposing a future upon them but if for some reason we can't get that resolution then we are prepared to take that matter into a courtroom what we'll do is we'll have our board of, board of county commissioners ratify the retention of a law firm to prosecute the matter in court is basically what we do and then it becomes a matter of litigation
1: and i also want to emphasize um, one of the requirements that hud has for us is that we offer mediation and conciliation throughout the investigative process uh, to try to mediate and conciliate these cases. And so that's why even before the conclusion of the case, before going into, into court, we will offer it up one more time. And we have two great, three great state certified mediators in our office who do great work. Uh, And we've had a great deal of success uh, doing that as well. One of the things that we often add in is public interest in the conciliation agreement that whatever organization is is found in violations that uh, we have to protect the public interest. And so we will provide fair housing training. uh, We will review their policies in which the violations were found, whether they were for persons with disabilities or criminal background. We would review their policies if we find out that they need some, some adjusting or fixing.
0: Okay and you know speaking of criminal background, can you talk to some of the dangers or pitfalls for landlords and property managers if they use criminal um, background as a screening process?
1: Jeffrey? No you got direct it directed because you know there's some new language from HUD that, that has come down and again you, you, you facilitate that during our, our, our live trainings or Zoom trainings and then I'll, I'll fill in the gaps
2: Fair enough. That's fair enough. So, so generally speaking, um, criminal, having a criminal background in and of itself is not a protected group. We talked about protected groups earlier. But there's actually two theories under the law as to what can impose liability. One is disparate treatment. That's the historical discrimination. Disparate treatment is treating somebody differently than someone else for a prohibited reason. We've already covered that's illegal. But there's also another theory under the law called disparate impact. And disparate impact is the theory that some policies or procedures can on their face be neutral, but in their application affect one group worse and to a disadvantage than other groups. And where this really first started picking up was if you remember like with the women's rights movement in the early, well, late 60s, early 70s, a lot of police departments and fire departments had these rules. You, you have to be at least six feet tall and 180 pounds to be a police officer. Now, is that on its face saying women can't apply? No, but in its effect, how many women is that screening out because they're not gonna reach the supposed neutral standard of six feet tall and 180 pounds? It's gonna screen a lot of women out and therefore it has a disparate impact on, on females. So too with, with housing, If a landlord simply says, if you have a criminal conviction history, you are ineligible for housing. On its face, that might appear to be a neutral rule or policy. But as we know for reasons of history, reasons of politics and structure of our country, in effect, that's probably going to impact minority communities far more than it will Caucasians or whites. And so to just have a broad rule, that says you can't have a criminal conviction history and right here or by here, will have that disparate impact, will likely have a disparate impact and therefore likely is susceptible to being challenged under the Fair Housing Act.
1: And one of the questions that we often get from, from landlords is, so what do we do? Uh, how, how do we, how can we accommodate or not be in violation of the law? And, and one, if you develop a policy, just make sure the policy is adhered fairly across the board. That you don't have a per se ban against persons with uh, with felonies, but have a process in place that they go through an application process uh, or um, a criminal background process. But everybody has to go through the same thing. And then you, they also get confused that an arrest is not uh, doesn't count as a criminal offense. Uh, mm-hmm. An arrest for an allegation of a violation is not a um, not a reason to not rent or to sell to a person. That's based on their arrest record.
0: Noting the difference between an arrest and a conviction.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Fundamental law, you're innocent until proven guilty. An arrest is simply a suspicion of criminal, it's not a conviction of anything. Mm -hmm.
0: And speaking of sort of controversial pieces of fair housing, um, I would say support animals and Emotional support or service animals and emotional support animals. I'm sure is something that you get quite frequently and especially if that animal falls into a breed that The local or Community has deemed um, Aggressive How does the law pertain to that those situations?
2: That's a great question. That's a A large share of our fair housing work relates to persons with disabilities, and then a large share of that relates to service and or support animals. But if you recall, a fundamental element or necessary threshold requirement is that only persons with disabilities can ask for a reasonable accommodation or modification under fair housing law. So you have to be a person with a disability that substantially limits one or more of life's major activities, eating, breathing, sleeping, walking, seeing, hearing, these you know, major life activities. And there's a nexus or connection between your request and your disability and how you would enjoy the housing opportunity. And so if it's a situation where I walk into a rental office and I have on dark glasses, a white tip cane, and I have a German Shepherd in a holster, in that situation, it's very readily apparent, I'm a person with a visual impairment, and that's my guide dog. And you shouldn't be asking about disability as the housing provider, and you should know why I need that animal. Everything you need to know is in that picture. And so even if you have a no pet policy, and landlords can have no pet policies, I as a person with a disability have a right to ask for a reasonable accommodation to that policy, To be allowed to live with my service animal to enjoy the housing it gets a little trickier though when everybody understands the guide dog with the you know the person who's visually impaired but when you get into support animals and therapy animals for mental or as well as physical disabilities then it gets a little more complicated because housing providers if that disability isn't readily apparent they do have the right to ask for a reliable documentation of the disability status, and the need for the animal. And so we get a lot of cases where they'll have a doctor's letter, my client is disabled, let them have the dog. But it doesn't explain why the dog is necessary as it relates to the disability to allow that person to enjoy the housing. So theoretically, persons with disabilities can make the request, but if it's not readily apparent what their disability is and why they need that animal then reliable third-party documentation can be requested.
0: And we've seen some unusual requests when it comes to emotional service animals, beyond that, dogs.
1: That was a point that I was, I was gonna make, so thank you for leading me into that. Um, any applicable rule or policy that you have in place, breed restriction, animal restriction, uh, all of those things go out of, the, out of the window for a person with a qualified disability who has a uh, substantial limitation of, one, of life, one or more life's activities. And so those things are exempt. So you can have some pretty exotic animals. But public safety is always a concern um, that if they, they these, what I'm going to say, the biases of the animal have to be based in fact and not just on breed. Um, they have to be steeped in reality and not on suspicion and I think part of the problem is is that people often look as, at service animals uh, as pets and they are really an assistive device to aid the person with a disability to have the full enjoyment of their home like anyone else. And so that becomes really important for uh, folks to understand. And, and there are some limitations, uh, but a lot of that is based on public health. And even then, uh, if, if, if uh, a dog uh, nips a lunge, uh, the property manager can say uh, when the dog out in public you have to have a muzzle on it. You know what I mean? And we we know that uh, a dog should be on a leash or at least be able to be controlled by voice command or hand signals. Uh, And a service animal is generally uh, trained to provide a specific service for the person with a disability.
0: So in other words, if you have uh, a pit bull that is an emotional support animal and you get reasonable accommodation because you have the proper um diagnosis and and um, documentation from a health provider that that accommodation may be made and as long as the homeowner has the muzzle on the animal when they're out in public muzzle in a leash then that could be an exemption even if the there's a no aggressive breed policy for the
2: community.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, My director really shares a really great story to kind of emphasize the importance uh, of how varied an animal can be without defining or limiting it. And it's uh, the ferret and uh, the service person. Paul, could you share a little bit of that story? Yeah.
2: (laughs) So I. Let's imagine if you're a service member veteran returning from war. And you have post-traumatic stress disorder, heart and hypertension issues, and what you need, what is therapeutic for you, is a ferret, a little, you know, f- you know, Freddie, little Freddie the ferret, and and as long as you have Freddie, you don't have your post-traumatic stress disorder nightmares, your heart and hypertension issues go away because you're at peace and you're at calm even though that's not a traditional animal that we associate as a service animal, it is a support animal because it's presence alone takes away the PTSD. It's presence alone allows me to sleep at night without the nightmares. It's presence alone brings down my heart and hypertension issues and allows me to then enjoy the community. And so, even if the, the landlord can say no pets, but if I walk in with Freddie the Ferret and I've got documentation, reliable third party from my veterans counselor from the VA, it's pretty likely that Freddie the Ferret's gonna stay in the community. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.
0: And um, are there any other stories that you would like to share that sort of, um, personify what we're talking about at any of the topics with fair housing. I always love a story because I think that people really resonate with those.
1: Well, one of the things that uh, if if we can share in in terms of a story, uh, I remember uh, a particular case we had um, dealing with a person who had a limitation of visibility um, that was moving into a community. That did not allow trucks, uh, flatbed trucks, and and they needed they needed an accommodation to have a truck in the community that did not allow trucks, um, because they they had the proper documentation, um, um, despite the HOA community asserting that there were other ways to reach that accommodation. Uh, And and why weren't those things followed? They had a proper proper documentation. They qualified as a person with disability. And even though the community did not allow trucks, there's now a truck in that community. Uh, That's how serious the government is in terms of making accommodations, reasonable accommodation and modifications for persons, qualified persons with disabilities. Uh, And and we try to encourage uh, property managers and HOAs and other individuals like that. You cannot or will not disavow federal law no matter how much you protest, if it is a violation of the law, if a person is qualified with a disability and they need to have this accommodation for the full enjoyment of their home, we are recommending that you make that accommodation and it can be a part of an interactive process. You can have a back and forth between the person with a disability and the community to see how we can make this accommodation work best for you and for us as an HOA or a community.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's a perfect segue to you guys have some upcoming trainings in the next couple of weeks for landlords, property managers and tenants, and they are free webinars that you're partnering with Gulf Coast Legal Services and the Hispanic Outreach Center. How can people um, get registered to attend those webinars?
2: Sure. So, so, Um, These webinars are in conjunction with those two organizations under the umbrella of the Tampa Bay Fair Housing Consortium. Our office, the City of Tampa's Human Relations Office, and others who are similarly minded as to advancing the cause of housing rights have come together and formed the Tampa Bay Fair Housing Consortium. And we're on the internet. We're at tampabayfairhousingconsortium.org or TBFHC. Dot org, and if anybody wants to log on and look, the events are going to be either of Friday, June
0: seventeenth, yep,
2: or the twenty fourth. Okay. For Both one, at one p.m. Um, one one component will be fair housing, as we've been discussing, and then one component will be more focused on landlord-tenant rights and obligations generically. Okay,
0: great. I will definitely be sure to include the link to that website in the show notes and comments so that people can access that. And I would love to have you guys back for a future episode where we can talk about implicit bias because you know that that part was really insightful. And you know it's something that we all have, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, it's it's not necessarily nefarious. It's just the lens through which we experience life and where, as individuals, don't have the same path of everyone else. And when we can become aware of that is when we can really make a difference. And like I said, given the light of what's going on in our country, I think it's a really important conversation to have.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, Jeffrey's the one who delivers that. Yeah, I, I couldn't recommend that enough. Uh, Jeffrey does that for our office. And every time he delivers that training, we get positive comments about how impactful it is, how eye-opening it is, how much people have learned. There's, there are always going to be some who are resistant to learning or being impacted. And Jeffrey even has a way of, of understanding and dealing with that as well. We can't recommend that training enough. That's probably the one way we'll move the needle the most as it relates to a lot of the issues we face. I don't know if you agree with that, Jeffrey, but.
1: Well, I I certainly do and it was it was also good to hear Nicole recite some of the things that we talked about in the training, which is a note of how effective the training is. Uh, It is just an opportunity to maybe see the world through another set of lenses uh, and and begin help began the communications uh, to having those difficult conversations around difficult issues that many of us like to avoid. And so it's a very impactful training one that we're proud to offer uh, and we'll be glad to do so. Almost anywhere and anywhere.
0: And even for people who may be resistant to learning, you know, just by attending, you may have planted a seed that, you know, is dormant for a while, but at some point it blooms and changes. Um, One of my favorite authors is Brene Brown. And I've read quite a bit of her work and her book, Dare to Lead offers some really great dialogue around difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely used some of those pointers <laughs> in the recent weeks having conversations with people. And it okay. has helped to, you know, bring down the temperature in what could have been a heated debate and just say, you know, I understand you feel that way, but that hasn't been my experience. Yeah. You know, and that really right. takes the pressure off of them to feel like they have to defend something.
1: Right, and, yep.
0: yeah. The goal
1: is not to win an argument, but open understanding.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you all. Um, Thank you both so much for what you do for our community and for protecting those who um, may be treated unjustly or marginalized. And um, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I look forward to having you both on again in the near future.
1: All right. Just let us know. Will do. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to you later, Paul. Stay well, all. Yes, sir. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe so you can listen to future episodes. And if you have a show topic that you'd like to share with me, or have a real estate-related question that you'd like to ask, I'd love to hear it. You can call or text me at 719-201-5022, or you can reach me via email at Nicole at com. That's N-I-C-O-L-E at s e l st